Welcome to the Healthy Seas Podcast, a show about what we need to do to have just that, healthy seas and a healthy future. I'm your host, Crystal DiMicelli, and in each episode, we talk about the problems facing the seas and oceans and the solutions we have to fix them. Come on in, the water's fine. I'm here today with Guillory Darabi, environmental journalist, filmmaker, and Healthy Seas Ambassador. She recently attended the UN Ocean Conference, hosted by Portugal and Kenya, and is here to give us the scoop on what went down, as well as share some of the on-location interviews she did while there. Hi, Guillory. It's great to chat with you today. Hey, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me. So tell me a little bit about this conference. You know, this is only the second time that the UN has hosted a conference focusing on the world ocean. And it was a great gathering. The last one was five years ago, uh, pre-pandemic. And there was a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. People were really chopping at the bit to get in the same room, to have really important conversations and dialogue about one of the most important ecosystems on planet Earth. And I have to say, Portugal, who co-hosted the event with Kenya, they were a wonderful, wonderful host city. They really captured the essence of being an ocean-dwelling urban city that has huge interest in development and technology and progression. Also, community and culture that has deep roots in maritime culture and fishing communities. So it kind of was a hybrid of all the right things. What was the focus for this particular event? Because there's just so many things that can be covered regarding the oceans. You know, there was everything talked about from ocean acidification to marine pollution to blue economies. There was actually a lot of focus on how being conservation-minded can actually be economically beneficial. And a lot of developing nations like Kenya were making promises and declarations that they want to dedicate themselves to a blue economy as well. And so there's a lot of talk about how it could be economically prosperous to conserve And the business-minded people are starting to understand that there's such a strong intersection there. You don't need to over-extract to be able to feed people, put food on people's tables, to have communities thrive. So there's a lot of talk about establishing blue economies around the world in developing nations, really getting different communities on board in, in terms of conservation, tourism, and cleaning up what they have. That could be such an incredible paradigm shift if they're able to accomplish that. But until we get to that point, there are many issues that the ocean is facing. Habitat destruction, acidification, heating, overfishing, and pollution, which is what Healthy Seas seeks to address. What are some of the things that stood out for you regarding marine pollution at this event? You know, across the board, everyone that I spoke to who really has a special interest in marine pollution, ghost gear, all kinds of things that are detrimental to the ocean in terms of, you know, foreign things entering that really cause a lot of problems. They were all saying that they couldn't believe how much these topics have become front and center. Five years ago, nobody was talking about ghost gear. It was really hard to get that conversation on the table. And today, ghost gear has really become a common term that a lot of people, not just in the environmental or political space, but everyday people are able to identify as a major issue and are really able to understand 
how the ghost gear gets into the ocean and, and really what kind of problems it's creating. And you chatted with Joel Basick, the associate director of the Global Ghost Gear Initiative, on how he thinks this came to be. What have been the key movements that have made it so much more front and center five years later? You know, it's actually difficult to say. It's one of those things that we predicted a while ago that it is such a, a critical issue and there's such a good storytelling element to it. Not that that's what it's all about, but the reality is that most people don't see what's offshore. They don't see what's underneath the water and the impacts of it are so intense. I, you know, it is the most harmful form of marine debris, pound for pound, because it's designed to capture marine life. I think that once that started to get out, we knew that there was going to be, I've called it like pushing a snowball up a hill for quite a long time. We knew though at some point it was going to crest down the hill and start to have momentum of its own and that's exactly what we've seen. It's what the Triple GI and what our members try to do is pull on all the different levers to get it to where it is. There's no magic bullet solution, but doing all of those things at once really got us to where we need to go and got the right people involved. And I think now it has momentum all its own. It's such a vital issue that is finally getting the attention it deserves. What kinds of solutions were being discussed at the conference for ghost gear or marine pollution in general? I mean, I loved hanging out with the scientists and the researchers, and I got so nerdy asking them all kinds of questions about what they are developing and what kind of products they were representing at the event, speaking to the scientists who had developed the unmanned boat that is solar-powered and wind-powered and can go out to sea for long, long periods of time, collecting important data, capturing important images to study different marine animals, collecting data on microplastics, really like think about it, this, this boat that's out to sea, there aren't human crew on board who get hungry and tired and lonely and need to go to the bathroom and miss their family. There are no stops for fuel. So it can just keep going and access parts of the ocean that humans probably can't. There's a funny story about how they get phone calls from different coast guards around the world wondering what this robotic thing is in their ocean and for them having to explain what they're doing with scientific purposes and negotiating different coast guards around the world. I thought that was quite funny. I also noticed, you know, a lot of green venture capitalists there with kind of their checkbooks in hand, paying attention to who the innovators are. And yes, there were big investments in big research projects that came from very reputable scientific institutions. But one of the ones that got me the most excited was this young woman who had developed a very chic cooler, you know, like the cooler you take to the beach and you keep your soft drinks in or, or whatever, your watermelon in. And she had discovered that the waste from coconuts actually makes a great insulation. So she created these coolers with coconut husk as the insulation. And the design was beautiful. She's put a lot of great research into it. And there was a company that made an investment in her and her product. And I got to talk to her and she was just buzzing and so excited. And really, I could just feel the payoff and the potential. And so really, the message that was sent to me very clearly is that you don't have to have a PhD or come from a huge research institution. You can just have a great idea and a spark of inspiration. And people now more than ever really do want to back and invest financially in wonderful green ideas. Oh, I love that. That's really great. You've also posted a story with Mark Lucas of CLS, which is a company providing space-based services around the world to monitor and protect the environment. Let's listen to what they are working on now. Can you tell me about the incredible satellite tracking devices that you're now using to help find ghost gear and abandoned fishing nets? 
Yeah, so we've got a we've got a kind of a, a series of prototypes, which are basically very small beacons which you can attach to the fishing gear, and these beacons can enable the authorities or even the fishermen to track the gear once it's lost, so you, you can recover it more easily than just going around in circles trying to find it. So essentially, you're tracking abandoned gear at the bottom of the ocean, but from space. Okay, so not not really. No, it has to be at the surface, but you can find the place where it sinks. So you track it on the surface, and then when it sinks, you can find it. But there are also some solutions which are based on acoustic devices, which now enable you to find a gear once it's at the bottom of the ocean. And how is this a game changer for those who are physically trying to clean up the ocean from this abandoned gear? Well, as you know, the ocean is huge. So when you lose something, it's, it's worse than looking for a needle in a haystack. And so basically, when you have the precise location, you can go to the right area, go down, pick it up and recover it. And so you're gaining time. So it's less dangerous for the people working. You know, you use up less fuel. So yeah, if you know where something is, you can go and get it quickly. You're right. That could be a game changer for fishers and ghost gear. Now, a press briefing before the conference stated that the conference will result in concrete measures adopted to build ocean resilience and more sustainable communities. These innovations you mentioned can speak to the truth in that statement, but how about commitments from countries? There was no formal legally binding agreement that was signed by all the nations who participated. There were many, many voluntary commitments that were made that were very exciting, but nothing that really held countries to account when it comes to their commitments. You know, one of the ones that I was most excited about was my home country of Canada, really making a huge pledge to take ghost gear very seriously. I mean, we have so many major coasts in Canada. We have such a huge influence on the world ocean. And we have strong maritime communities and fishing cultures. And to see that big commitment, that was really exciting. So things to get excited about, but who's there to hold the country's feet to fire? You know, if they do lag on the, the commitment that they made when they were caught up in the excitement and, and the rush of everybody really coming together with a purpose. That's a really good point. You have lots of promises, but can you get action? And so that makes me think of something we talked about before the event. You had said that you had some doubts on whether the carbon footprint for all of the people flying into this event would be worth it if the return on investment was really worth it. How do you feel about that now? Yeah, it's so true. You know, as an environmental journalist, I have always been so skeptical of these huge global gatherings, whether it's the COP conferences or any sort of UN event. I always feel like heads of states and tons of people from around the world fly in to be there in person. I mean, the carbon that is sacrificed that is used for them just to be there is immense. And I often felt like nothing big ever came out of it. I was always looking for that big legally binding promise. And when that wasn't announced in the headlines, I was always very disappointed and almost a bit bitter. But what I understood being on the ground, it is, it's more about the micro connections and the one-to-one moments and the exchanges of details and connections and conversations that are truly, truly important. When you put humans in a room together, we are social animals. We do amazing things. And I could feel the magic and the energy and the urgency of us all coming together. And we're all people with the same passion and the same focus. Now, what I would love, and this is me having a lot of Virgo in my astrological chart, I would love for there to be 
a service or an agency or a group of people who appear kind of like magical elves every time a great conversation is happening, commitments are starting to be made, promises are starting to be made, that this collective of people show up and are like, all right, we're the task force. Let's get a calendar out. Let's get some verbal agreements out. Let's get some written agreements out. Let's get a plan. And I feel like if there was this kind of service that would show up every time, a wonderful creative jam sessions, you know, really at its height, that truly incredible change could come out of these kinds of events. Oh, I love that idea. Maybe we need to open up that task force and become them. <laughs> become- what would we call it? Oh, geez. That is the worst question to ask me. I will overthink it to, to death before coming up with anything. <laughs> Do you have any ideas? How about, how about you? Yeah. How about make shit happen? Oh, <laughs> now. perfect. I'm done. Thank Check. you. <laughs> That's our new company. Hire us uh, next time. <laughs> fantastic. So now a conference like this is great because it brings together so many different stakeholders, like you just said, but some key ocean stakeholders were still missing. The fishers, who are individuals that Healthy Seas works with alongside. Do you think it would have been important to include them? And how might the results have been different if they were there? A hundred percent. You know, I got the chance to speak with and get to know Lefteris Arapakis, who is the wonderful creator of Analia, and he works directly with the fishing communities in Greece and has created a wonderful fishing school to help them learn more sustainable practices. He's now motivating them and helping them through programs to fish plastic out of the water. And he comes from a fishing community himself. His father is a fisher, his grandfather, you know, he comes from a fishing village. And 100% he felt the absence of that community that he represents and that he sees every day and who inspired him to spearhead this initiative that actually got him the prize of UN Young Champion of the Earth, you know, that community is what propelled him to become a star and to be recognized in this collective. And he was looking around wondering at all the panels that he was speaking at and all the different breakout groups that he was in and wonderful one-on-ones. Where are my people? He's really what he wanted to know. And he felt it didn't seem so democratic to him that here we are making big decisions about things that directly impact the fishers' lives, the fishing communities' lives, maritime communities' lives, and they have no say. They have no opportunity to speak their truth and represent their story. And I have to say, I absolutely felt that absence as well. So moving forward, I really, really hope to see the communities who are being so actively discussed there and representing their communities. Those stories matter just as much as any head of state, any big NGO, those stories really need to be heard. And he shared a message with you that he says the fishers would want all of us to know about plastic pollution and how it affects them. Yeah, I I think what the the fishing communities would like the world to know is that plastic is here, you know, plastic pollution is here and it's not only affecting the marine ecosystem, but it's also affecting our livelihood, our societies, our way of living and also our local economies. They're having huge troubles with all this pollution that's uh, coming in their fishing nets and also in in their boats. But what I think they would like me to say is that there's also hope. Uh, The fishing communities, they are actually living from the ocean and the sea. They are respecting the sea in the ocean. So if you provide them with a solution that they can take care of the sea, 
they'll do it. So this is why they, they have become fanatic activists against uh, plastic pollution, because they realize the, the connection. So maybe my point would be like, the fishers are leading the way and I think more people can, can follow. Any last moments or things that stood out for you that you would like to share? I mean, I had a couple, but I got to say, when I was attending a panel talking about ocean plastic and marine pollution, I learned something that I actually didn't really think about, that the significance that rivers play in contributing or being the the channel, the artery that takes urban plastic pollution to the ocean. And how much rivers are under-considered when it comes to tackling the issue of ocean pollution. And really, you don't have to live next to the ocean to make a big impact. If you have a a river in your local community, that that actually could be a significant artery that transports a lot of your community's trash to the larger ecosystem that we call our beautiful ocean. So even if you're nowhere near an ocean, what you do or whatever trash that might get away from you and end up in a local waterway can get to the ocean. Absolutely. If you want to do something about marine waste and you don't live by an ocean, you could become a river keeper and really invest a huge amount of your passion and energy and time into keeping your local river clean. It's an artery. It's an important channel. It moves things and it can very much move plastic from your city garbage can to a larger ocean ecosystem. Very nice. So what was it like being the ambassador for Healthy Seas while you were there? You know, it's it's an incredible honor. And I got to say, I cannot mention Healthy Seas to anyone without a huge smile breaking out on their face because they're truly doing the work on the ground. Outside of the laboratories and the government buildings, they're putting on the wetsuits and getting in the water. And through that experience of getting in the water, they're building relationships with communities who work with the water every single day. So it's so much the front line of the marine crisis and the marine hope and potential. And so it felt really nice to represent this group of superheroes who are literally suiting up, getting in the water, and doing some pretty like very technical and sometimes risky things physically to leave this beautiful ecosystem more beautiful, more clean, and more pure than, than when they first got there. And so that was a huge honor for me to represent them. I got to say, Healthy Seas also got me into diving. So I'm not just hanging out on the sidelines, but I'm also a diver. And that story, being able to share that story about how they encouraged me as a storyteller to get into the water when I was absolutely fearful and I felt like it was never accessible to me was a nice story to, sh- to share with other people and perhaps inspire other people, especially women, to take up diving and, and explore that incredible opportunity as well. Of course, since they work so closely with ghost diving volunteers. Well, that's a fantastic note to end on. Thank you so much for being the ambassador and bringing Healthy Seas into the conference and the conference back out to us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for creating this wonderful platform where we can share our experience. So thank you for your talent. And I really look forward to listening in. Absolutely. Thanks for diving into the Healthy Seas podcast with me. I'm your host, Crystal DiMicelli, and I was just chatting with Guillory Darabi, Ambassador for Healthy Seas. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and review it on your favorite podcasting app. I'll catch you next time. Healthy Seas is a nonprofit on a journey from waste to wear. Founded in 2013, the organization aims at reducing marine litter caused by lost fishing gear through cleanup, prevention, and education activities. The nets collected by Healthy Seas are subsequently reused and recycled and used by its partners for the creation of new products.